I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And right now, I want to I wanna deal with something that's been a, a real challenge for me and a, a matter of personal curiosity, European manners and customs. You know, I've been in Germany, and I, I want uh, one uh, wiener, and I hold up my first finger, and I get two because I didn't realize, oh, that's how they count is with their thumb first and then the first finger. And I was in Bulgaria, and I nod my head no, and I accidentally say yes. Or I'm in Switzerland, I slap someone on the back and I lose a friend. Or in France, I don't know if I'm supposed to give them two-cheek kisses or three-cheek kisses. So it's uh, a little bit overwhelming and a little bit, it's fun, and it's it's not going to land you in jail, but it it will uh, cause you a little embarrassment if you mess up. So we have joining us today a woman who's written a book called European Business, Customs, and Manners. Mary Murray Bosrock has written seven different books on the subject. This is her latest. Mary, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Boy, what an interesting uh, area to become an expert in. How did you get uh, so involved in all the fine points between the different cultures? Well, you know, Rick, I say that I'm not an expert, that there are only varying degrees of things you don't know. Right. <laughs> but but actually, I was traveling around the world as a writer for a foreign trade magazine, and I was doing serious trade articles. And when I would turn the tape recorder off, the person I was interviewing and in, Tokyo or Taiwan would start to tell me about things they disliked about Americans. And it was always, why don't they know something about us? Why don't they know something about our culture? Why don't they take time to understand us before they come here? And I thought to myself, I don't think Americans intend to do that, but we just really don't know a lot about the rest of the world. And unfortunately, that comes across as arrogant and kind of the ugly American. Yeah, it may be an innocent mistake, but it really reflects a lack of interest and a lack of respect for the cultural differences if if we are clueless to the, the fine points, isn't it? Unfortunately, that's the way it's viewed. It's viewed as a lack of respect. It's viewed as um, Americans thinking that everybody should do things our way. And again, I think a lot of people don't intend that. They just don't know the issues. They don't know how to behave. And as a result, they come across like that. Well, I love it when an American is going over there and dives right into it and is willing to make mistakes and learn from their mistakes and so on. In your book, you say there are something like there's good mistakes and there's bad mistakes when struggling with these cultural differences. What did you mean by that? Well, you know, I think mistakes you make when you're trying, if people really see you're making an effort. For instance, in most countries, if you, in fact, try to say a, a good morning, a good afternoon, a please, a thank you, even if you don't say it perfectly, Uh, France might be the one exception to this. Mm -hmm. But even if you don't say it perfectly, people really enjoy it. I, um, several years ago, I gave my husband a surprise birthday party in Vienna, Austria. And I prepared a little toast at the end of the party to thank my guests, uh, my Austrian guests who had helped me you know, prepare the party and everything. And I was studying German at the time. So I had my, my professor help me prepare five or six sentences in in, uh, German. And everybody at that table spoke perfect English. But to this day, 15 years later, when I'm in Vienna, people will always talk about the fact that I gave this little toast in German. And again, it didn't have anything to do with understanding what I was saying. It just had to do with the fact that I was showing respect for their culture. Yeah. I think the most famous example of that is... uh Ich bin ein Berliner Kennedy, right? Oh, that that was John but, F. Kennedy. But he made a little mistake. Yeah, that's right. He said, ich bin ein Berliner. And he meant, I am a Berliner. But in Berlin, a Berliner is a jelly donut. 
But you know, you know, Rick, that went down as one of the great moments in history because really what he said was he didn't say he was a jelly donut and he didn't really say he was a fur letter. But what he said was I cared enough to learn your something in your language and I tried. And I think that's what I'm talking about mistakes. That, Good that's mistakes a, that's and bad a, mistakes. That's a that's a great encouraging example, isn't it? I mean everybody probably thought good of him because as an American, as a very important person, he was showing he really cared enough to try to pick up the language. They did. They loved it. The correct thing would have been, ich bin Berliner. Is that right? Yes. But, you know, and again, that's just a colloquialism in, in that area uh, So the point is, Germany. take a risk, but do your best to, yes. to, to yes. embrace the local cultures. And, and you, you can't go wrong if, you have, if you're coming at it from a respectful point of view. That's right. Well, you know, on the other hand, when Ronald Reagan went to the Republic of Ireland, he wore a red and blue striped tie. And actually, I was just with a gentleman the other night who reminded me of the fact that he was one of the people that had greeted President Reagan. And he said everybody was taken back because the regimental stripe in his tie was that of the Royal Air Force, the British Royal Air Force. Oh my and goodness. so he said, I asked him, I said, Mr. President, is there some reason why you're honoring the, the, the RAF? And he said, oh, what, 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 what are you talking about? I mean, he wasn't aware of it, yeah. obviously. But again, a good advisor could have. That's the problem. Um, I remember when yeah. I was in uh, uh, Northern Ireland, it was when I was going into pubs with my friend who was Northern Irish. Boy, you had to be careful what colors you wore when you went into a pub because you wouldn't want to wear orange in a, in a Catholic pub or, or green in a, in a Protestant pub. Yes, and a lot of people who go to Ireland, it, it's really one of the pet peeves in the Republic of Ireland. People will say, uh, gee, aren't you nervous? Aren't you scared about going into the streets? And, you know, they've heard things about Northern Ireland, and they don't separate the difference between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. And, again, that's just one of those things where uh, there's probably nothing more offensive than just not knowing anything about somebody. Well, and they'll, they'll straighten you out. I, when I was in um, Italy, I gave a, a man who I really like a, a T-shirt, and it was a red T-shirt. And he said, I can't wear this. This is communist, and our town's not communist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he pointed across the valley and said, over there, they would wear this T-shirt. So there's these kind of things you can learn, and, and thankfully, they'll, they'll set us straight. I'm talking with Mary Murray Bosrock, and she writes a book called European Business, Customs, and Manners. Now, Mary, your book is primarily, it sounds, for business travelers. Um, give me an example of the practical value of, of knowing this information when somebody's doing business. Can you actually lose a deal for not holding the fork right or something? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we've seen a lot of instances where I wouldn't say is just not holding the fork right. But, you know, I did have somebody in Germany tell me that he could walk into a restaurant and observe people at a table, and he would immediately make a judgment about the breeding of that person. Mm. And Europeans do care about manners, and they do care about behavior, and they want to do business with people that they feel they can be you know, feel respect for and respected by. So I think it's really important in Europe. Unfortunately, most people tend to buy the book on Asia and read about Asia yeah. more than they would Europe. And I always say that the, the while the Asian cultures are very different than the, the Western cultures, the, the Asians tend to be a little more forgiving and not expecting us to necessarily know as much about them hmm. as the Europeans but the Europeans are quite offended. And we Americans, by our nature, we almost pride ourselves in being um, casual and informal. And uh, Europe right. has the opposite approach. They're much more Absolutely. refined. They come from a heritage of, of class and aristocracy and so on. That's right. I challenge anybody to walk into a cafe 
in one of the major European cities, and dressed in tennis shoes, a baseball mm. cap, and a sweatshirt, and then go back and dress appropriately mm. and see the difference in the way you're treated. Yeah. A lot of restaurants in Europe will have um, reserved signs on the table, and when somebody comes in who's dressed inappropriately, they simply say, sorry, all the tables are reserved. I, I've laughed sometimes because if I'm dressed very nicely, you know, the proper shoes and the handbag and the whole thing that they notice, and I walk in and I'll see all the tables saying reserved, and I'll, gee, I would really love to have lunch here or dinner here. Is there any chance I can get a table? And Oh, no problem. Right. And the reserve sign comes off. Wow. But, but I think really what reserved means is we're reserving the right not to seat you. That's a nice, polite way to give them that option. Do you find that the this sort of formality and respect for traditions and the differences from country to country are changing as Europe is modernizing and, and uniting and so on? You know, I... Definitely they're changing, and younger people are not holding on quite as strictly to these these values as the older people are. But the interesting part to me that I have found, Rick, is that each individual country, I think, is holding on even more strongly to their culture and their way of doing things because they're all being forced now. I mean, most of the countries are now going to be using the euro, and so they're, some of them are giving up their currency. But uh, what I'm finding is that what makes them unique, even their regionalism, they're holding on even more strongly to it than they did before because of the fact that they're having to give up so much on the economic and the political level for the EU. So you don't see the unification of Europe as something that affects the diversity of Europe in a bad way, then you think that the regions are going to even uh, wave their flags more vigorously now that the continent's uniting? I do. As a matter of fact, you know, one of the examples was in, I I'm, don't know whether you read this, but in Spain, Spain was about ready to give up bullfighting. You know, there was a lot of discussion about mm. the fact that it wasn't humane, and, and they were actually pretty much getting very, very close to giving up bullfighting until the EU came along, and they they have now gone back, and bullfighting is a, you know has come back with a vengeance in Spain, and they have said we are not giving it up under any circumstances. And I think this is true of most of the countries. I mean, you look at the French, how the French want to hang on to their style and their elegance and their culture and their language. And of course, the, the new EU countries, the countries that were forced to give up their language because they were under the Soviet bloc, now they're preserving their language. Even even Ireland. Well, I've noticed the the Celtic languages are now thriving, and uh, I noticed that when you go to Catalan in the northeast of Spain, you've got the Catalonian colors and flags and language thriving now as uh, as Europe unites. This is very interesting, and that's good news for all of us who are Europhiles because of the charming diversity. I I think it's fantastic. I think, first of all, I think the whole idea of the EU, when you think of historically the problems that they have had with each other and that they're now able to work together like they are for the betterment of everybody, but at the same time respect the uniqueness of each one of these cultures. And, you know, it's law now, you know, in the EU, in the organization, they, I think they have the last time I heard they had 21 languages. Things were being translated into 21 languages. It's really, and they're committed to that. Even though it might be inefficient, they are really committed to keeping that linguistic diversity yes. going. Alan's on the phone in New York. Hi, Alan. Hey, Rick. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for your call. A uh, t- couple questions for Mary. Uh, first one is I do some work occasionally in Mexico and in Spain. And I notice when I go into an office that people kiss each other, hello, good morning, etc. as an Anglo coming over there. 
do I participate in that custom, or should I continue with my Anglo custom of shaking hands when I meet people for the first time? What do you think would be appropriate? Great question, Alan. Absolutely not, um, especially in the business setting. Uh-huh. Uh, I would not kiss anybody. Now, once you become friends and if you're invited into somebody's home, then it would be appropriate to do that. But I, I actually had a woman from Brazil who told me about coming to the United States, and she said she went into the boardroom and there was an American who went over and kissed her on each cheek, and then he turned to his colleagues and he said, this is how they greet in Brazil. And she said, number one, this man was a stranger. Number two, I was in a business setting. And number three, I never, I didn't even know who he was, and I was, I was insulted by what he did. So I think you're, you're just much better off to just give your polite handshake and, until you get on a real personal level with people. Great. Thanks. Second question for you. Um, in our school district, my son is going to be involved in a homestay program in France this summer. He's an exchange student. We had a student come here from France. He's going there. Are there he's 16 years old, by the way. Are there any things that maybe we should be telling him to look out for or to do that might be above and beyond what would be considered appropriate here um, that might be inappropriate in a European household? Well, you know, there are a lot of things. Um, for, one, for one thing, I don't know, does your son take his shoes off when he comes in the house? Yeah, usually he does. Well, you know, it's interesting because that's different in every country. In, in, in Italy, they're offended by the fact you take your shoes off when you come into the house. I, I think if he just asks politely, um, what are the rules in the house? And again, I think there's nothing better than just, I, in my books, I always say, ask look and listen. And mm-hmm. I think a little bit of quiet reserve, just observing how other people are doing things. Um, if, in fact, you know, the children get up and clear the table after dinner to do so, if, you know, or whatever, to, to just kind of be open to doing things their way. And even even expressing the fact that he really would like to be taught how to do things appropriately in, uh-huh. in a French home. Okay. Definitely helps. Thanks very much. Thanks for your call, You're Alan. You're welcome. Bye. And Reagan in Dallas. Hi, Reagan. Hi, how are you, Rick? Great. Thanks for your call. Thank you for taking it. You bet. I actually uh, I had the opportunity of working in a law firm in Paris a couple years ago, and uh, I, I noticed I speak French, uh, or I learned French. I didn't grow up speaking French, but I noticed that... Uh, the majority of the time, every, everyone would address each other very formally uh, between secretaries and lawyers, and especially associates addressing uh, higher-level lawyers. They'd use the VU form as opposed to the TU form. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering, is that, is that pretty common throughout the business community where you would, you would address superiors uh, with the formal appellation as opposed to a more familiar tone? Absolutely, Reagan. What you found is common all over Europe, and it was smart for you to pick that up immediately because, unfortunately, Americans like to go immediately to first names, and we feel comfortable, and sometimes we slaughter people's names, and we kind of laugh when we're doing it. And I think what we don't understand is to the rest of the world, particularly to Europeans, their name speaks to their family history, to their position in their company and in their 
sometimes even their country. And they still are much more sensitive to their names and titles, proper use of their names and proper titles than we are in the United States. And this idea of, of not knowing or using somebody's titles, I actually spoke with a – I was interviewing a German um, and I asked him, I said something to him about, gee, I said I was – I met with your colleague, the man who's in your office, Hans. And he said – he looked strangely at me and and, he, and finally he said, are you talking about Dr. Fankart Froschel? And I said, yes. And he said, well, I didn't know that his given name was Hans. Wow. And I said, you've – office next to this man for 20 years and you didn't even know his given name? And he said, no, I've never addressed him that way. So particularly in business settings, even people who are good friends will address each other by their proper title and their name. Um, and And it's important to do the same. We had a very, very good friend from Austria who is actually the ambassador to the United States. And he came and stayed at our home in the United States several times. And when we were alone at home with him, we would call him Thomas. But anytime we were ever in public, we would always refer to him as ambassador so-and-so. And you just knew, Mary, that that was the proper thing to do, or did they instruct you that way? Well, I learned from just traveling abroad and kind of observing what people do. And then, of course, by when I was writing these books, that was always an issue that came up. So you would err on the side of conservativeness until they let you know? Absolutely. I would never, never address anybody by their first name, their given name, unless I was invited. I've had some very sweet experiences in Europe where I've been working with somebody who runs a hotel that's recommended in my book or something for for 10 years. And finally, they, they sit me down and they go, you know... Now you can call me Susan. And mm-hmm. until then, it was always Mr. Steves and, and Frau Scheutz. It is a, it's kind of an, a step through a threshold in your relationship when they finally let you know that you can go first name basis. Absolutely. And for me, it was very, very strange because we, we pride ourselves in getting to that first name basis quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the Austrians and the Germans have a, what they call a do ceremony where you go off the formal name onto the, instead of the Z, into the do. Wow. And they actually have it where you, you take a drink and you lock arms and you drink out of each other's drink, and then that means you have now become on the level of a do, or I think in the United States what we would call on a first-name basis. But that may not happen for 20 years. They actually have a ceremony. Is that unique to Germany as far yes. as you know? I haven't seen it any place except Austria and Germany, and they call it the do ceremony. Our, some of our listeners might not be up to speed on this. In English, we just say you, but in German, for right. instance, there are two different kinds of you. There's the informal you that you would talk with children, right, or uh, good or good friends, and then there mm-hmm. is the formal you. It's uh, do and z. But anybody would call children um, do, right? Correct. Because children are always going to be like. A, less respected, I guess, in the in the mm. formality of the language. But to call a formal acquaintance do is like calling them, treating them like a child, I guess, almost. It's just... Absolutely. Absolutely. And and those things are noticed. Now, are there, in, in our English language, because we don't have the formality built in, does that put us at a disadvantage? Well, you know, it's very interesting. You know, when I was doing my USA book, I, I was quite shocked about how sensitive Americans are about their names, you know, people calling them by their first names and or giving them a nickname. You know, for years I had gone around telling on radio programs and speaking and saying Americans are really casual. They don't care about their names. And I found out Americans are, are as sensitive 
to our names. It's just that we do call each other by our first names. But, you know, a lot of people are very offended by somebody giving them a nickname. Like if, if I said, if I got on with you and said, hey, Ricky, you know, you may say, you know, you may be very offended by As that. As a matter of fact, I am, yes. Well. <laughs> no, that's a funny thing. Yeah. It happens all the time to people that you give them to try to be playful. You give them a nickname and then you realize mm-hmm. a few, probably a long time later that, oh, they didn't, they didn't like that very much. Uh, we're talking mm-hmm. with uh, Mary Murray Bosrock and she writes the European Business Customs and Manners book. And, and Mary, you were mentioning about the titles. Tell us a little more about that uh, beyond Mr., Mrs., Ms. and so on. Well, in in most of the European countries, if you have a doctor's degree or you even have a master's degree or you have any kind of a a title, uh, it can even be an engineer or whatever, people are usually addressed by those titles. And actually, we were at at a cocktail party in Austria, and I heard somebody say, doctor, 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 and I... What's that all about? And the man had three doctor degrees. And so they were calling him doctor, doctor, doctor. And um, so, again, they use their titles. They use their degrees. And they use them in their name. And they really want them to be used. And I always suggest that if you meet somebody and uh, the business card is a great tool for looking to see what the correct title is. But also, it's not inappropriate to ask, to say, what do you prefer? What Hmm. do you prefer to be addressed as? And um, people will tell you, you know, I prefer to use this title or and they'll have a clear preference, I would imagine. Yes, absolutely. But always, I think, erring on the side of Using the the highest title, the most correct title, you know, Vice President uh, Walter Mondale has uh, always endorsed my books, and I always address him as Vice President Walter Mondale or Vice President mm-hmm. Mondale because that was his highest title, and in in real correct protocol, you're supposed to address people by their last highest title. He's also a Minnesotan, yeah. and he's also an extremely humble man. So I, when I ask him, how would you like me to address you, he always says, Walter. Walter. All right. Mm-hmm. Reagan and Dallas, any more uh, questions or comments for Mary? Actually, yes. I, I found uh, erring on the side of uh, safety and using the formal you uh, is always safe. But I found with the younger um, people my own age, and especially the younger business community, they were very quick to say, you know what, use the two or the or the less less formal you with them. Um, do you foresee, as the younger business community ages, do you foresee kind of that the more formal you being phased out, or do you think it'll continue to thrive there in the in in the EU? Well, it's going to be interesting to watch Reagan to see what happens. I do think the entire world is becoming more casual, and I do think the younger people are are going in the same thing in dress and. Even their body language, they are becoming much more casual than the older people were. So I think probably another 20 years from now, a lot of these things won't be as important as they are today. But, you know, another thing is body language. You know, Americans have really casual body language. And, again, I think the younger people are becoming Mm -hmm. a little bit more relaxed about that. But in the past, a lot of what we did with our bodies was viewed as just being sloppy. And not very respectful. Even though things are getting more casualized, I think we should probably, I imagine it's best to uh, figure it's more comfortable for people to tell you you can be more informal with me than 
putting them in a position where they'd like to say, I wish you would treat me with more formality. So start the conservative way and then they can happily tell you, hey, we're buddies. You can call me. You can call me Thomas. Reagan, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, you, Mary. Thank you. Liz in Centerfield, Ohio. Hi, Liz. Hi, Rick. Thank you so much for taking my question. You bet. Well, I am a grad student here in the U.S., and I'm considering uh, doing an internship in London. And I'm familiar with corporate America, you know, how, you know, the workplaces. And I was just wondering how do the attitudes and sort of the work ethics in the sort of corporate America compare with their British counterparts? And what are sort of the pitfalls to watch out for for an American in a U.K. workplace? Work ethics, what, what, do, what do you mean exactly by that? Well, you know, you see, you know, just sort of the, the general work attitudes, you know, going out, socializing after work, or how, ah. you know, work hard, you know, long hours. How how does that compare? Well, actually, my older son um, was lived in London and worked for a, a British bank for several years, and. Uh, he loved it, and we we I happen to think the Brits are great, and they're very easy to to get along with, but they definitely do have a different different way of behaving than we do and I think one of the things is they have a great sense of humor, but they they're also knowing what they call slagging they'll do a lot of slagging they a lot of times will will if you're doing something that they think is inappropriate or whatever they might tell you but tell you in kind of a joking way. But it's interesting because you you can get the message, I think, but indirectly. You know, the the Brits pride themselves in civility, um, of having the highest level of civility of anybody in the world. As a result, I think it's a pretty easy place to do business and to, to interact with people. What do you mean by slagging? What is that? Well, slagging is kind of, it's a, I guess we would call it teasing. Oh, teasing. They do yeah. tease. A lot of times yeah. I don't know if I'm being teased or not. I'm just in a social yeah, situation in England, and uh, I feel like, um, I, think I'm, I think I'm being teased, and I'm so clueless I'm oblivious to it. So. Well, and they, they do it in a different way than we do it in the U.S. I think we're, it's more um, kind of, we understand it a little better in the U.S. And, and also in places like Ireland, they do a lot of teasing, and you... You kind of have to understand the the way the dialogue is going. Now, having said that, in countries like Austria and Germany, they don't like teasing at all. You know, trying to to, hmm. to make some funny off the cuff comment is not only going to not not be understood; it's it's actually going to be offensive, and they don't like it at all. Liz was talking about uh, work ethics and so on. I find Europeans are very strict about taking a lunch and and not making it filled with work. Have you found that, Mary? Absolutely. They they think that Americans are work way too many hours of the day, and they do. They take their lunch, and even if it's just going out to the park and taking a little sandwich and taking their socks down and, and getting a little sun on their legs, they, they really do. They believe in working hard and playing hard, and but taking time off to enjoy life. And but they'll tell me, if you're not going to take a lunch, a, a real lunch, I mean, like, don't take a break from work, don't take a lunch at all. It's just, I mean, they just yeah. think it's barbaric to have a working lunch. And they still will have a glass of wine at lunch or, you know, some some alcoholic beverage that uh, we don't do very much in the U.S. anymore. You know, most people in the U.S., if they don't have lunch at their desk, very few people, I, I almost never see in, in anybody in the U.S. Having, having any kind of alcohol with their lunch, but it would be unusual in, in Europe not to. 
Liz, does that all make sense to you? It's great information. Thank you. Good luck in your travels. Thank you. You're going to have a ball, Liz. (laughs) I think so. We're talking with Mary Murray Bosrock, and Mary has written a number of books on the cultural fine points that we travelers have to deal with, and her latest book is European Business, Customs, and Manners. Mary, we've been talking about all of these intricacies and ways that you can mess up and and cause your host to be uncomfortable or you to look less with it. Distinguish for me the importance of this from a business point of view compared to uh, uh, just a casual tourist. Well, you know, I always say business is done between people, and therefore business relationships begin and develop as personal relationships. And I think before people want to do business with you, they want to know that you're the kind of person they can do business with and they can, can feel comfortable with. So... It's very, very important in the business setting that you, you know, that you in fact show respect for the the other people's culture. I actually had a young man tell me about going to Germany with his boss, and he said they opened up the session in the morning. The American manager said, "Well, you know, we're going to be spending all day together, so let's um, slip our coats off, roll up our sleeves, loosen our ties, and get comfortable." And he said the German manager got up and said, thank you very much. I want to welcome the Americans here, but the Germans prefer to stay dressed. Wow. That's a major. Yeah. He said there were just – he could feel icicles all over the room because he said as opposed to what the American manager thought he was doing was making everybody comfortable, it made the Germans uncomfortable. So I don't think people should be afraid or scared – either for business or for pleasure when they're going to Europe. But they should just, it, knowing these things is are really supposed to make you more comfortable, more relaxed, more at ease, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, to present yourself the way you would want to be presented. Sure. Now, over the years, you've probably uh, observed a lot of uh, American diplomats in Europe and so on. Uh, anything make, make you cringe when you, when you see how the American diplomats carry on in Europe? Well, you know, I can never figure out why people aren't, you know, you would think they would have a staff that would tell them some of the, the major faux pas that they're not supposed to do. But I can remember when George Bush, the 41st president, um, used to get off the plane and he, he would greet Margaret Thatcher and Helmut Kohl. He would have his left hand in his pocket often and you'd be shaking hands with his right hand. And, you know, the people in the UK and in Germany were offended because they said that was not only an offense to their leader, they view that as an offense to their country. And they were always talking about that. And again, it was really, I'm certain, nothing that he intended right. to be as an insult. Well, there's a, that's a good innocent mistake. I wouldn't know that. But if you did, if you were, especially if you're a diplomat or if you're doing business, it really behooves you to bone up on this sort of thing. Let's talk about that. Shaking hands across the board is what pitfalls can we avoid when it comes to shaking hands? Do you get eye contact? Do you have a firm handshake? Do men and women shake hands the same way? Well, you know, it's interesting. It's different in every country. And I think the American handshake where that that really powerful handshake looking directly into somebody's eyes, in the European countries, it tends by and large to be not quite as as firm and long as the American is, but it's not terribly different in Europe. Okay. Now, in the Asian cultures, of course, it's different, but in, in the European cultures, it's, the handshake is, is pretty much the same. And, and I think also always looking into somebody's eyes when you're shaking hands um, or when you're saying anything. You know, a lot of times we don't do that. Now, again, there are countries where, where people are a little shyer and will not look 
directly in your eyes and that's okay too. I mean, but you you can't be expected to learn, you know, to drop your eyes in in the countries where they do. But I think the important thing about learning what somebody in a country that somebody might do that is that you don't misread the fact that those people don't like you. Um, actually, in Finland, the Finns have a a saying that they say even if we even if we look at our shoes, we still like you. And what they mean is they're a little they're kind of reserved and they're quiet, but they don't want you to think that they don't like you because they're this way. So there are some countries where eye contact is a, a little more shy. Absolutely, and of course. You know, they did a survey once. I don't know, Rick, you may know this. You may have read this, but they did a survey and they they went, they asked business travelers, if you were traveling all over the world and you were on a long flight and you had work to do, who would you least like to be seated next to? And 100% of the answers were Americans. Hmm. And the reason was that they said Americans talk chat, talk to strangers. You can learn an American's um, life history if you happen to be seated next to them for 15 minutes on a plane. And to a lot of the rest of the world, they're uncomfortable speaking to strangers. They're mm-hmm. even uncomfortable you know, making eye contact and recognizing strangers. I'm, I'm sure you've been in restaurants in Europe where you have been seated at the table with strangers, right. the same table, yeah. and it's almost like there's a, a an invisible wall there. Well, they, they can manage with a, with a denser population where you don't have enough room for everybody to have their own home or their own table even, and they learn That's to right. live in tighter uh, tighter quarters, and they talk softer. Typically, you can be on a, on, a, on a bus, and there's 30 people on the bus, and there's four Americans, and that's the conversation you hear because the Americans speak very loudly. That's right. And they, you made the point about the dense population, and people have their cafes that they go to, and they're a lot closer proximity to each other all the time. So they have to respect that privacy, respect that silence, not that they don't want to be imposed upon. That's one of my challenges as a tour guide is to bring my Americans into an intimate situation like that and have them not ruin the ambience by yucking it up. You know, we, mm-hmm. we sit close together, you talk softly. Hey, before mm-hmm. we leave the eye contact thing, I know in a lot of countries it's a very important part of a toast when you, when you, uh, you know, clink glasses and drink to each other. You have to get what they call meaningful eye contact. Absolutely. And I think I address that in every one of the chapters in the book. Giving a toast in a country, first of all, learning who toasts and how you toast and what's the appropriate toast is is wonderful, number one. And number two, like you say, t- to make the eye contact, uh, never never to drink until the toast has been made. You know, sometimes you'll be at a, a, a formal function and you'll sit down and the, they'll pour wine and and Americans will start to pick up the glass and drink. We'll wait and for the toast. It'll be, yeah, it'll ah. be, it is very or or also to wait till the host picks up their their knife and fork before you do. It, it's considered. Very, very bad manners to okay. to take a drink or to pick up your utensils before the host or hostess has done so. Oh, I think I better read your book. I'm speaking with Mary Murray <laughs> Bosrock. She writes European Business Customs and Manners, talking about how we can uh, minimize the cultural faux pas. We got Art on the line from Indiana. Hi, Art. Thanks for your call. Yes, uh, Mary. Uh, I've been to Germany a few times, and uh, in fact, I, I, I kind of look German here, and I'm approached by a lot of strangers. Uh, well, not strangers, but <clears throat> they think I'm a uh, a German national. And uh, they're surprised to find out that I'm from America. So my question was, uh, should I speak or not to speak uh, in German? Should I learn that? 
You mean when you're speaking to the Americans? No, when I'm speak uh, when Germans approach me, should an oh. American speak German or practice their German? In other words, uh, oh, typically our German is not quite uh, perfect. Yes. Well, you know what I what I find is that um, unfortunately most Germans and most Austrians and most German speaking people speak English very very well. As a matter of fact, my husband laughs at me because I study German and. When I'm in a restaurant, I will speak all evening to the waiter in German, and he speaks all evening to me in English because we're both practicing. But you know, I I think it's, I think it's, I always think it's very nice to try to speak the language, and the Germans are very appreciative of it. And at some level, they may say to you, you know what, let's just speak English because it's becoming too difficult to understand you, and they speak. Better English than you do German, but I have never found that people didn't appreciate the effort. They didn't appreciate you trying. So I think you've got a great advantage if you, especially if you speak it that well, that people think you're a local. Okay, thank you. Good going, Art. Thanks for your call. Boy, I know when I'm uh, in Europe, I think it's just a matter of politeness to start by not assuming they speak English, but asking politely, "Parlez-vous anglais?" Speaking to English and so on. Usually, uh, absolutely. If they say, you know, if they say no, then I, I do my best in their language. And uh, oftentimes, you know, they start by saying they don't speak English, but after a few words or a few sentences of my attempt at German or French, they'll say, actually, I do speak a little English, and then we'll go with the English because they just find it easier. But don't you find, Rick, that, that still that's a nice entree? Oh, it's a beautiful they're entree. still appreciative. I almost, it's almost silly now because everybody does speak English, it seems like, in the business world and so on. But I think it's a matter of politeness. It's a great way to, to start with that. I, I think so, too. And you're never going to go wrong. No. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Mary Murray Bosrick, the author of European Business Customs and Manners. Mary, I've got some things that have that have always um, I've been confused about the uh, cheek kissing business. It I can never get the straight story. Does it vary from country to country, or how well you know somebody, or what's the deal with how many times you kiss the cheek? Well, actually, both. Almost immediately, once you get on a personal relationship with somebody, you do do the kissing of the cheek. And it varies from country to country. Some, some it starts with the left and goes to the right and then to the left. And some, some countries do it three times and some countries do it two times. Um, again, we list that in our, our book. Uh, but I think it's just being kind of open, maybe letting the European Let them lead in the take dance. The lead. It's kind of a dance. Yeah, but, you can but, let them lead. Yeah. But, you know, you don't put your lips on their, you know, there's nothing wet about any of it. You don't, you don't put your lips there or anything. It's really, um, it's it's called an air kiss. But you make that and nice you kiss noise. The air. That's right. It's a yes. it's a charming thing, and I think Americans should be more comfortable than they generally are about the cheek kissing. Go for it. I I'm with you. Good. I think All that's right. a great idea. What about hugging? Americans love to hug. I mean, men will hug, girlfriends will hug just when they greet each other or say goodbye. Is that typically American, or is it about the same in Europe that some people do it and well, some people don't? Well, you know, there's those hugging countries and the non-hugging countries, and if the the huggers love to hug and the non-huggers hate to hug, it really is important to know the difference. And I hate to draw the line of south to north, but it, mm-hmm. that's kind of how it goes. But, well, the Norwegians, the Norwegians, the the Danes, the the Swedes, the the Finns, are, are not huggers, and they don't want to be hugged. And on the other hand, the Italians, people from the Latin cultures, and all that, they tend to be huggers. And that's t- Touching and, also, isn't it? Just touching in yes, general? Absolutely. And I had a, a woman tell me about hugging a friend from Norway, and she said, you know, I, I knew better. I knew she didn't want to be hugged, but I, she was just so nice, I just decided to hug her anyway. <laughs> 
So she probably it's not a good idea. I, I would not hug in the non-hugging no. countries. What about public displays of affection? If you're romantic with somebody, is it um, are there are sensitivities that way? I would keep that private. You okay. know, there are certain places where, places like Italy, you know, where they say they love life and they love love. Mm-hmm. You know that you might be in a some place in a, a very romantic setting where where people will be you know hugging each other in public or something. But I think most places that's not considered appropriate public behavior. How about you know Americans fly flags in their cars and we have T-shirts that say "Proud to be an American" and this sort of thing. How does the European uh, respond to that? And do Europeans sort of uh, have the same overt pride in their countries? Well, you know, they are very proud of their countries, but not in that way. They're they're quite taken back by that flag-waving, in-your-face patriotism that that we show, you know, like you say, wearing the shirts and all that. I I think that's pretty inappropriate and not appreciated. Yeah, I can't imagine a Belgian wearing a T-shirt, proud to be Belgian. No. (laughs) But they still love their beer and their muscles, and and they love singing their Belgian songs. So I guess they show their pride just by um, expressing their cultural uniqueness. Absolutely. Tell me also about this um, directness. Americans are kind of uh, proud of being direct. I think the Dutch are direct. I think the French, uh, I think, isn't the word to be frank? Is like to be like a Frenchman? Yes. Yes. But that that is an interesting question because a lot of people from other countries are not like that. You know, that conversation is indirect and that blunt in-your-face kind of response is not appreciated. So, again, I think knowing um, the difference between, you know, being blunt and straightforward and not being in what countries to do it in does make a difference. The Dutch are almost off-putting in their bluntness. They are. But, you know, Rick, I think the nice part about knowing that is you're maybe not offended when the Dutch are that way. Um, I had a friend. The Israelis are very, very blunt. And I have an Israeli friend that I, I told him I, when I first met you, I thought always thought you were mad at me. And he laughed because Americans are known for being direct. But again, some other people are even more direct than we are. And like you say, it can be off-putting. But I think if you know that, you're not you're not offended if you know that's just the way they are. Talk to me, Mary, a little bit about the um, sensitive areas when you're making small talk or just uh, you know chatting. I mean, uh, you you wonder is this off color joke inappropriate? Is there how important is mixed company? What about talking about communism or or the Nazi past and so on? Well, off-color jokes aren't appropriate at any time, um, anywhere. So I would just leave those at home. But I also think knowing a little bit, each each one of our books, we have kind of subjects that you need to be sensitive about, which means that you don't necessarily have to not discuss them, but you should ask your hosts' opinions. And, um, you know, for instance, like Northern Ireland, like the issues that are going on in Northern Ireland, as opposed to coming in and start telling the the people in Northern Ireland what they should do and how they should do it and your opinions about the, the situation in Northern Ireland, to be sensitive to perhaps Asking questions about it, people aren't going to be offended if you ask questions about, you know, how they feel about their relationship in the U.K. and or with the Republic of Ireland. But again, to ask it sensitively, um, the Germans to be very sensitive about the issues of the World War II. And, but again, it's not that you can't discuss those things or those things are taboos. It's, it's asking appropriately. They'll let you know if it's appropriate if you just open it up as a possibility. Um, I've been with people a long time and I had a feeling they were not political at all. But as soon as I 
break the ice or, or, or crack the conversation open, all of a sudden uh, I get a flood of their thoughts on on our president or whatever, you know. So Europeans, yes. I think, are polite when it comes to these issues, but as soon as you let them, you can kind of subtly get into it, and then you realize, ah, this is fair game, and now we got ourselves a political discussion going on. Mm-hmm. And they like that. They like intelligent conversation. Right. They like to talk about where they traveled. They like to talk about what's happening in the world. Most of them are extremely knowledgeable. They know a lot. I, I just had a man tell me the other day about... He said he was, um, oh, he said he was in Ireland, and he said he was in a pub, and he said on one side of him was a shepherd, on the other side was a medical doctor, and he said we had a great conversation. He said they were both extremely knowledgeable about all the issues in the EU and basically issues in the world. So, again, most people like to have interesting, intelligent conversations, but, again, just with a little bit of a sensitivity. Sure. And another issue that changes from country to country is the treatment of time and punctuality. Uh, what's the story there? Are there some countries that you really want to be perfectly punctual and then it's more relaxed elsewhere? Yes, absolutely. Each country has its own sense of what is on time. And, of course, the the extreme is in Germany where on time is maybe 15 minutes early. And I guess the other extreme would be Spain and, and Italy where being an hour late might be being on time. And again, it's important to know that because if you're invited to a function or and you're invited to somebody's home for a dinner party and you're in Germany and you arrive a half hour late, you've insulted your hosts. And if you're in Italy and you arrive uh, 15 minutes early, you may find your host is still in the shower. So it's important to know. And again, <laughs> it's not it's not inappropriate to ask. I sometimes ask, always in business. I would be on time anywhere in the world. Right. But I sometimes ask if somebody's hosting a party, I'll say, now, is this is this Italian time or is this – what time is this? Are we really supposed to come? And nobody minds. And speaking of punctuality, when you're hosting a radio show, when you're out of time, you're out of time. We've been talking with Mary Murray Bostrick, and she writes European Business Customs and Manners. Mary, thank you so much for joining us. It's been fascinating. Thank and, you. And I want to read the rest of your book. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Each year, Rick Steves' tour guides take thousands of free-spirited travellers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from 36 exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe, from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free tour catalogue and Rick Steves' tour experience DVD, visit the tour section at ricksteves.com.